Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. The week between Christmas and New Year's is usually a time for relaxing and reflecting. This year, however, that's not the case in Georgia. We're kind of jealous of all the other 49 states who have finished their election season. That's David Key, founding pastor of Lake Oconee Community Church. It's a house of worship located between Atlanta and Augusta. He's a Baptist minister with a purple congregation. We, as everybody has been suffering from the COVID challenges that have impacted all houses of faith, and the constant just bartering, especially of negativity that we got early on in the election and now in the runoff, it's been an exhausting year, uh, 2020 as a whole, and we're ready for January the 5th to be here. That's the last day for Georgians to vote in the special election. It's a runoff to elect two United States senators on one ticket, Reverend Raphael Warnock versus Kelly Loeffler, and on the other, John Ossoff versus incumbent David Perdue. Voters will decide not only who to send to Washington, but which party will be in control of the chamber come January. And the stakes couldn't be higher. Voting began on December 14th, and already 1.5 million Georgians have cast their ballot. Now candidates, surrogates, public interest groups, including super PACs, are working day and night to get out the vote, and many are turning to negative attack ads, flooding the airwaves, including ones that target the faith and religious identity of the candidates. In July, the American Jewish publication Forward broke the story reporting that graphic analysis of a digital ad posted on Facebook by Senator Perdue's campaign intentionally distorted the length of John Ossoff's nose to make it appear longer. Ossoff is a 33-year-old investigative journalist and filmmaker. He also happens to be Jewish and is challenging the 71-year-old one-term incumbent, Senator David Perdue. To Emory University assistant political science professor Dr. Audra Gillespie, that alteration, while subtle, is a well-honed tactic used in political advertising to appeal to implicit bias and plant seeds of fear. Jewish Americans have, and, and Jewish people across the world have been portrayed, and in particular looking at their nose as a marker of their ethno-religious heritage. That's something that is problematic. It's not surprising that the Ossoff campaign would condemn that and that the Purdue campaign would be forced to adjust. I see that as being somewhat similar to ads where African-American candidates or Latino candidates have their features darkened um, to make them appear more menacing. Sort of given uh, the history of visual portrayals um, of people of color, of religious minorities in the United States, these are things that people always have to be very vigilant against. But the race where faith has become a central attack line is the one between Reverend Raphael Warnock and Kelly Loeffler. To Reverend Key, the attacks manipulating Reverend Warnock's words and record, which go back nearly 20 years, go too far. Since the November election date and into the runoff, most of the religious attention has been given to Reverend Warnock. Reverend Warnock is a graduate of Union Theological Seminary, uh, where he studied with some of the leading theologians in the country. He also was on staff at Abyssinian Baptist Church, which is a major uh, pulpit there in New York City. 
him because of his credentials and because of his multiple decades of preaching, uh, there's lots of material there uh, for folks to be able to look through and to try to find things that they can weaponize. A lot of it is pulled out of context. Uh, and in pulling out of context, uh, they try to make it sound more horrifying. They try to make it unpatriotic. Gillespie sees the framing in stark terms that play on religion and race. I see the ads as juxtaposing white evangelical Christianity with black liberation theology. And I do view the ads as putting black liberation theology on trial. I also see the racial subtext and actually explicit text in these particular ads. So I think that there are lots of things that are are going on here. Since 2005, Reverend Warnock has served as the senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. He is the youngest pastor to serve in that role, and it's a public one at a storied church that has been at the center of the civil rights story in America. It is the spiritual home of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his father. Reverend Warnock has used the pulpit to engage in ongoing issues in Georgia and to speak to those unfolding around the country. In 2014, he appeared on Interfaith Voices in an episode titled Soul Searching After Ferguson. The conversation was with Reverend Graylin Hager and Reverend Holness about the role of the black church today in addressing systemic racism. Certainly we have seen uh, clergy there on the ground in Ferguson from day one engaging this issue But there have also been incredible young people, many of whom are not connected to anybody's church, truth be told. And the young people really, I think, have led this movement and in some ways have pushed the clergy along. And uh, but we, we certainly have seen clergy on the ground playing very heroic roles. Sometimes the only thing between the young people and the police were clergy who literally Uh, laid their bodies on on the line. So this has been the legacy of the black church at its best, this this commitment to justice-making in the world. Reverend Warnock's book, The Divided Mind, Theology, Piety, and Public Witness, wrestles honestly with the challenges facing the black church today, both in the area of social justice issues and the struggles in a post-civil rights era. Now he is asking Georgians to send him from the pulpit Martin Luther King once served to Washington. His opponent, Republican nominee Kelly Loeffler, is also a newcomer to politics. She is a wealthy financial industry executive who was appointed to the seat on January 6, 2020. That's when Senator Johnny Isaacson resigned for health reasons. According to Gillespie, the recent attacks mounted by Loeffler and her surrogates are part of her ongoing political evolution, moving to the far right of her party. So uh, Kelly Loeffler, when she was appointed to the seat, was a political unknown. Many people think that Brian Kemp uh, chose her to replace Johnny Isaacson in part because of a hope that she would appeal to uh, more moderate, college-educated white women in the suburbs who would see themselves in her, that perhaps she might appeal to people who might find Donald Trump to be too acerbic, too strident, too polarizing. But shortly after Loeffler's appointment, Trump loyalist four-term Congressman Doug Collins defied state party leaders, hoping instead to appeal to conservative voters who knew him to be a loyal Trump defender. He ran in the special election on November 3rd. Now, with fierce competition for Republican and Trump supporters, Loeffler, the political novice, adapted. Because you had two very prominent Republicans running among many other candidates, the contest between them was a contest of 
sort of who could capture the Trump right flank of the Republican Party. Both of them were literally trying to out-Trump the other. Kelly Leffler was somebody who certainly tried to highlight her Christian faith, certainly tried to highlight her pro-life bona fides. But then uh, she veered even farther uh, to the right by trying to say that Doug Collins was insufficiently conservative. And she described herself as being more conservative than Attila the Hun. On November 3rd, Loeffler made it into the second place, earning herself a spot on the ticket in the runoff. She received 26 percent of the vote to Warnock's 33 percent. The stakes are greater now after the general election because the race in Georgia will determine which party controls the levers of power in the United States Senate. With President Trump losing the general election in Georgia by more than 11,000 votes, the races are not only competitive. According to the latest polls, the races are too close to call. The National Party's interest groups, advocacy organizations, and campaigns are pouring millions of dollars into Georgia to get out the vote, and that pressure seems to be working, according to Georgia officials. Since early voting began in December 14th, more than 1.5 million Georgians have voted. While Loeffler appeals to Trump loyalists, Reverend Warnock is working to appeal to the positive legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And that, according to Gillespie, is what the Loeffler campaign is seeking to weaken. But the strategy involves appealing to fears about the black church and its leaders. How this relates to the discussion of religion is, is really interesting. So in particular, attacks on Reverend Warnock and on his theology, the first ad uh, that came out that really addressed this came out right after the general election where uh, Leffler linked Warnock to Jeremiah Wright. So first, it reminds us of that sermon that President Obama had to distance himself from as a candidate in the 2008 election when it almost upended his candidacy in the primary. And it focuses on that term that was so provocative, that goddamn America quote. What I think Leffler's pointing to, because, you know, those are the only words that you hear, is sort of the implication that Raphael Warnock supports a Black preacher that uses the Lord's name in vain. And so is violating one of the Ten Commandments. And the thing is, is that, yes, it was meant to be provocative and it's kind of on the line, but we've heard the other sort of parts of that quote. So we know that uh, Jeremiah Wright was critiquing U.S. policies and talking about how uh, not Christian they were. And he was basically saying that God can't bless America, that God's going to curse America. And he's using damn as a verb there. So he's not using it as an adjective or in a way to use the Lord's name in vain, even though by hearing that in church, you will probably kind of like perk your ears up because you're not used to hearing preachers preach in that particular way. We know where the quote came from. So we know that while you may agree or disagree with the statement, he may offend good taste, but he's not actually using the Lord's name in vain. But then there's this larger issue of critiquing America and whether or not that could be viewed as unpatriotic. And so by attacking Reverend Warnock's theology, by linking him to Jeremiah Wright and noting that Reverend Warnock supported Reverend Wright during his controversy during the 08 cycle, by highlighting his support of Black Lives Matter, by highlighting his support of Palestinian rights, by highlighting his support of abortion rights, he's trying to undermine Reverend Warnock as being an Orthodox Christian by saying that his theology is 
foreign and by implication, perhaps even a little bit heretical. So that if people think that he's a good Christian like they are, particularly amongst white evangelicals, that she has helped to disrupt that particular notion by saying, this guy isn't the type of Christian that you think he is. He, in fact, is not familiar to you at all. Gillespie points out that the strategy of attacking the way Reverend Warnock is perceived cannot be separated from his identity as a black man. So PRRI recently published survey data where they asked whether or not it was good for Americans to exercise their First Amendment right to protest. And they did it in a split sample experiment where uh, the right to protest was framed as when Americans do it, it's good versus when Black Americans do it. And it's good. And the interesting finding of that little experiment was that when you frame it in terms of Black Americans protesting, support goes down. And so you have a minister saying things that are tough about America, but it's a Black man who is saying things that are tough about America. So it doesn't really matter that he's a minister, right? It's that there's a Black man who is critiquing America and doesn't sound grateful in the minds of some people. And that's the type of resentment that Leffler is tapping into to say that Warnock is not one of these people like you. In fact, by implication, he's not like that Martin Luther King that you revere, whose pulpit he occupies. And that's a misunderstanding of King, who could be very critical of America and in the latter years of his life was not particularly popular in the United States because he wanted to take on the federal government with respect to the war in Vietnam. But we forget that because we only hear the sanitized version of King, the I have a dream, the triumphant King, we don't know or we choose not to really dig into the rest of the story. In the debates, Gillespie says Warnock was too defensive. But now in the closing days of the campaign, as the attacks on his faith intensify, she sees a shift. Warnock is working to transcend by focusing on the part of his story that he believes will appeal to broader audiences with a message that will echo and remind voters of the I Have a Dream King and cast himself as one who embodies it. I didn't expect him to be as transcendent as he's been. Surprised me there. So he first tried to be preemptive with this. So this is a point where he was on the offense and not the defense. Everybody knew that people were going to go through his sermons and try to like pick out sound bites that were going to be damning to him. So he first was preempted with it with a really humorous ad that says people are going to say all kinds of stuff about me. It's not true. Let's you know make sure that we focus on the issues and still please vote for me. But after the ad started to come out, his response to the ads at first was to invoke the American dream and talk about how it's only in America that a story like mine can happen to basically prove that he wasn't anti-American. And Warnock's response to the attacks from Leffler and her surrogates was to highlight his father, a World War II veteran. He was saying, like, look, I'm not anti-military, right? But he doesn't actually explain his position. And then one of the other ads that he points out is the fact that uh, soon after being sworn in as the senator last year, uh, Senator Leffler appeared at the annual MLK celebration at Ebenezer Baptist Church on Martin Luther King Day last year. I happened to be in attendance at the audience. And so like when I saw the ad, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. I was there. That's a joint kind of collaboration. It's mostly led by the King Center. He's on the dais. uh, And so you can see Senator Leffler coming up and making her very gracious remarks, including the part about wanting to come back. And you see Reverend Warnock in the background. The question is, that was really hypocritical for you to criticize my preaching when you showed up at my church and were on stage with me at the same time. 
I was surprised that in the debate that they had, uh, which was televised nationally, that he didn't come back harder against Senator Leffler, who spent the entire debate basically trying to call him radical leftist Raphael Warnock. Instead of like engaging her on that and actually trying to get her to stop saying that, he seemed to kind of talk around that. I would have expected him to, to hit back a little harder. The political scientist in me probably wanted him to hit back a little harder just because of the concern about the racial messages sinking in and perhaps implicitly influencing and priming voters uh, to make decisions that might be sort of based on subconscious bias. The thing is that by portraying him as a radical Black nationalist, which is basically what they're doing, they are invoking images of scary Black people of other Black people, of Black people who might not be worthy of citizenship, might not be worthy of leadership in the same kind of way. So not like me and you. And by not being like me and you, that still can invoke racial differences in a way that could be scary or could be viewed as demagoguery. The central role of the Black church during the civil rights era is undisputed. Today, however, there are questions about its relevance, its power, and its sphere of influence within the Black community, and the emergence of different theologies in Black churches, ones that are not focused on social justice. Where does Reverend Warnock fit in? There are the debates about whether or not the Black church is dead. Um, I think Reverend Warnock is sort of the embodiment of the ways that the Black church, particularly the prophetic Black church, the one that speaks to social issues, the one that sees itself as speaking truth to power, isn't dead. Um, Are there competing theological strains within Black churches? Yes. You know, most people would look at kind of the prosperity gospel as being more individually focused. Um, White evangelicalism is certainly steeped in sort of enlightenment notions of individualism. And that's where kind of some of these tensions lie. We're going to sort of have a discussion and a debate um, about those issues. But Raphael Warnock and Ebenezer Baptist Church are not an anathema within sort of the orbit of churches in the Black community, certainly not within Atlanta or Georgia. There are other churches that from a theological standpoint and from a social justice standpoint are oriented in that direction. So while the big prominent preachers in evangelicalism across low dollar or T.D. Jakes might not be in the vein of Raphael Warnock, there's more than Raphael Warnock out there. There are a number of preachers. And many of them are actually, you know, relatively young. They're older Gen Xers, so in their their late 40s and early 50s. -hmm. And they still have a prominent voice within the African-American community. Coming up, we meet a former Navy chaplain with roots in Appalachia who wants to mobilize people of faith around the country to respond and push back against the attacks on Reverend Warnock and organize. New Moral Majority, which was founded earlier this year, um, really in order to do a couple things. One was to reclaim what we believe to be a hijacked narrative about who represents the majority of people of faith in this country and reclaim uh, particularly the faith of our founders, in, which is Christianity, in the public square. And then the second was to really um, advocate for the people that we think have been most harmed and pushed to the margins by the current administration. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. 
I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show.